Now, we don't usually picture Jesus, and this has nothing to do with my message, but you don't really picture Jesus um, getting frustrated, you know. Uh, he does sometimes when he takes on the Pharisees, when he says, oh, you think you're children of Abraham. No, no, you, you, you speak your native tongue, lies, and the father of all lies is the devil. I mean, he, he gets at him, and when he kicks over tables in the, in the temple, but can't you just see, Jesus, if there was that time when actually there's a person death? Can't you just see him up against the wall? You know, and he, he hands up and he kicks his feet out and he takes his hands back and watch your head. <laughs> that's what he came to do. He came to take away the enemy of humanity. And that's death. I mean, that's forever death. Death that lasts. Death that separates us from him forever. And honestly, that kind of works with this book of Colossians. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the church in Colossa, and then I'm going to remind you of the illustrations from last week, and I'm going to give you a new one. And the reason behind these illustrations are these little word pictures, the, the bubbles and the instruments and the thing we'll use today, is so that when you see things out there, you might see a picture of something. You might see a bubble in a bathtub. You might see a bubble. I don't, you might see your instruments on your car or follow your GPS. That, that you'll just be reminded, just a picture or just a word, or just something, it's hard to remember all the flowery language that Paul uses in the book of Colossians. I mean, he has run-on sentences that I, I mean, I, I have to take the biggest breath I can take if I'm not going to breathe during reading the sentences. I mean, they, they're long. And Paul, he's, he's brilliant. And he never, he, he never minces words, but he also doesn't waste any words. But I also know that in our daily busy, kind of crazy lives, it's hard to remember long sentences or long encouragements. But hopefully, these little word pictures, these little illustrations are things that you can grab, that you can, they're just enough that you can take them in and you can chew them and you can swallow them and make them part of yourself. So as we begin this new series on the book of Colossians, and it's just titled the book of Colossians or the letter of Paul to the Colossians, it's just all, it's all it is. And it's a strange book. And I mean strange not in what it says, but it's one of the few books in the New Testament, one of the few epistles, letters to churches that Paul writes this letter, but he didn't plant the church. So he's writing as an apostle on behalf of another to give them some encouragement because of the things they're struggling with. So let me offer a prayer, give you a little background on Colossians. We'll read in kind of in two segments, most of the first chapter of Colossians. And hopefully you'll, you'll leave here today encouraged and reminded of who you are, who God is, and what he wants for you. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your servant Paul. Thank you for your scriptures, your love letter to us. Thank you that you give us hope. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what each individual person here needs to see and needs to hear, but also, Lord, as a church, as a people of God, we ask that you guide us, that you lead us, that you teach us, and that as your word goes out, it will not return void, but will accomplish that which you've sent it to do. And Lord, if there's something I plan to say that you don't want me to say, I don't want to say it. Convict me of it, because I don't want to be speaking wrong things or preaching heresy. But Lord, if there's something you want said that I haven't thought of, that hasn't come up in study or hasn't come up in prayer, or hasn't come up just in thought and planning, Lord, make it burn within me so that I know that it's from you and I will speak your word to your people today. Lord, join us. Be blessed by this and remind us that we are here to give glory to you and that this is, this is your message for us, not my message for them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Colossa is a strange town. It, it, it was once a big deal. 
Okay, and about first, just before the first century, before, before Paul was going around the known world three times on his missionary journeys, not long before that, Colossa was a big deal. It was a big trading hub. It was a cultural mecca. And somehow, some way over time, uh, and I don't know exactly what it was, Laodicea, which you hear about, the, you, we, we might not know of the church of Laodicea, but he shows up in Revelation. It's the one when Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold, so I spew you out of my mouth. We love that one. But uh, Laodicea had kind of grown up, and it has those hot springs. It's this big, it's this big deal, and it's kind of a tourist place and a cultural place. And then there were the, there, uh, I can't, Herop, Heropolis, I think. These two others kind of grew up and Colossa kind of diminished. And I don't know why, and I can't think of a city that, that we would all know of. I can tell you about my, my, my home, where I, the city I was born in, Americus, Georgia. Americus was, um, I don't know if it was ever a big deal, but it used to be a big deal in that area until Jimmy Carter was elected president, and Plains is 10 miles from Americus. So it used to be that, well, America, you know where Americus is. Well, Plains is near there. Now it's, well, you know where Plains is. Well, there's Americus over there. And Lynn and I were there a couple of years ago, and we drove, I was trying to find the house that I, I have some very vague memories of. I got locked in a closet, and I remember that the doorknob fell off. And so whenever I have an experience of terror, that's on that little four-year-old boy in that closet. So I wanted to see this house. And so we were texting my mom, and she gave us directions. But we decided to go to America's to have lunch. And we drive down. There's, there's two main streets, one that goes one way, and then you come around, and then it's one-way street the other way. One of those streets was industrial and there, was, there were no trucks, there were no cars, it was just dying. And then you go down, you come around, you come back up in the other main street, that's restaurants and, and shops, and, and that's thriving. So if you can kind of, if you've ever seen a city like that, where the old main street is not main anymore, and the new main street is kind of the thing, if you ever picture that, 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 that Colossa is the old main street. They used to be kind of highly lifted up, and now they're just kind of the forgotten people. And Paul planted churches all around there, but this church was, was, was founded by Epaphras. He was the church planter that got this started. Um, and Paul, though, loves them, never met them, but he wants, he's hearing of, of great things from them, but he's also hearing about something kind of contaminating the truth of the gospel. And there's some of it's understandable. There, you know, most of, most of the, the, like in Galatians, you know, Paul, the Judaizers, the Jewish people had come in and they were trying to, they were trying to make Christian, Christianity more Jewish. And Paul says, Jesus plus anything, the law, rituals, whatever, Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing is everything. So he had this heresy, this, these people that are trying to change the church that he was trying to correct. And most, you'll, you'll see different ones in different books, but this one, we're not sure. It seems like kind of an amalgamation of several different things. Just this, lots of different small heresies, like pre-Gnosticism. And most of us don't know about what Gnosticism is, but it's G-N-O-S. So it's where we get the word knowledge. We have a K instead of a G now. But um, the Gnostics believe that anything of flesh or time, anything temporal, anything you could touch or feel was evil, and that, that knowledge, special knowledge, is what's good. And so they were arguing, even here, even in this time, before there was true-blown Gnosticism, people were arguing that, dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> there were people that were arguing that Jesus wasn't really in the flesh, 
that he would, he appeared to be in the flesh. He appeared, he was kind of a phantom. He came because things of flesh are evil and things of thought are good. So God couldn't send evil to be good. So there was this debate, this discussion and people trying to lead others astray. And on top of that, in, in, in Colossia, there, there were these they were Jews, but they weren't the people that really received the gospel at first. But, but the Jews kind of came into the new Christians. The new Christians were Gentiles. Gentiles just mean non-Jews, okay? The, these new converts had grown up in faith pretty quickly. And the Jews decided that they were going to come in and contaminate the gospel. And here's, I think, this is what most, most scholars think, that the Jews forever have had for generations and generations and generations and generations had been called God's chosen people. They were dearly loved by God. And God was going to use them for all of creation as a beacon on a hill, as a light in the darkness. And that God would use Israel to draw all people to himself. And that they had an inheritance. They had an inheritance that was greater than all the other inheritances. They were going to receive righteousness and everlasting life. And, and, and so that was their identity. So think about it like this. If you, if you, you probably know someone in this area who has a business that's thriving, that was founded by their great-grandfather or their grandfather, and it's been passed down either through marriage or through bloodlines, and, and now it's being run by others. And imagine if someone came in and said, all of that? All that property, all the millions, all the stuff, all the people that, 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 that you've blessed, I now own it. No, you, you didn't do any. My, grand, my great-grandfather, you didn't. Well, God said. You're going to get a little bit miffed. So imagine the Jews who have all of this history with God, as good and as bad as it was, finding out now that through Christ, everything they counted on for themselves now has to be shared with anybody, even those people. So a little bit of that going on. They're trying to convince them that, no, you got to be more Jewish. You can't touch that. You must do this. This ritual, this rite, this holy day, this, this, this holiday, you have to celebrate, and you have to do it just like we've always done it. You have to practice all these things, law, ritual, temple worship. And so the Galatians who, or excuse me, the Colossians who, who, they're new. And Christianity does come out of Judaism, so they're wondering, man, that seems like I might need to do that. And so they're starting to debate. And on top of all of those things, there's this idea of syncretism. We have, this is the one that's so relevant today. These pagan people that are new converts to Christianity, these people that used to be, have several gods or all kinds of other religions. And because this had been a trading Mecca, people had families and generations of, of worshiping other things, of, of, of doing different things, of celebrating different holidays. And you've got those folks that kind of go, well, you know, there's some good stuff in the religion that I was a part of before. So let me hang on to that good stuff. And that, that's not so bad. I mean, at least it would remind us, and we have this history of celebrating something around the winter solstice. So maybe, maybe we'll grab that and we'll bring that in. And, and this, is that, this is that other religion. My great-grandpa used to worship this God. And we're going to pick a little bit of that. And we're going to mesh it all together. And we're going to make something. We're going to take the best of all and get rid of the worst of all. Paul has Judaizers. Paul has syncretists, and Paul has various other philosophies that you'll hear throughout this book. And here's what he's trying to say to the church in Colossae. Stand firm. 
Know who you are, know whose you are, and know the gospel. And here's the next illustration for you. Secret Service, you guys all know who they are, right? They're the guys with the mics, and they, they tuck in the here, and they have the sunglasses and the suits, and somehow they've got Kevlar suits on, and they're carrying submachine guns that are tailored underneath, and, and they protect the President of the United States and other dignitaries. You know, the United Nations is meeting in, in, this last week in, in New York City, and, and Secret Service are the people that protect all those dignitaries and set up security for them. We know that. But you know that the Secret Service is part of the Treasury Department, and they also are in charge of making sure that our currency remains pure. And so they're in charge of anti-counterfeit stuff. Now, the people that are protecting the president aren't studying $20 bills, okay? But the other segments of, the other parts of the Secret Service are responsible for lots of other things, counterfeiting being one of them. And so their job, when they train them, and I'm sure they do it a little bit differently now. This illustration's old, and in, 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 it's early 90s, I think, when I read it the first time. Um, I'm sure they have scanners and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things they do now or one of the things they've always done is they teach people what currency looks like. $1 bill, $5 bill, $10 bill, $20 bill, $50 bill, $100 bill. And so they study. And they make them sit and they look and they look and they study every little piece. And as they change currency, they print something new with some different colors. And that weird security strip that's somehow in between that paper thin paper, um, they make them study it front and back. They make them walk alongside every pixel under microscopes, that kind of thing. And so they teach them what real currency is supposed to look like. And then on occasion, they'll take a stack of $120 bills. And I don't have $120 bills. So I can't do that illustration. But they'll take a stack and they'll hand it to someone who's training, who's, who's finishing up their training, and they'll take it and like a deck of cards, they'll go, and they go, and they'll do it here, and they'll do it here. And they're able to narrow down what's, what's, what the good ones are and what the one counterfeit bill is. It's kind of like if you had a deck of cards, all black, no matter what, whether they're puppy feet clubs or spades, and there's one heart in there. If you flick through a hundred of those cards, and you go, oh, wait, oh, oh, okay, there's no red here. So you keep flipping, and sooner or later, you'll be able to find the one red card out of all the black ones. Secret service agents can do that with a $20 bill. They will not be able to tell you what's wrong with the one that's counterfeit, but because they know the true one, they know the real currency, the pure currency so well, they can't say this is what's wrong, but they can tell you Something's wrong. And so they're able to separate the counterfeit from what's real. That's what Paul is doing in the book of Galatians. He's reminding them of what is true, what is pure, what is gospel, who Jesus is. To counter the Gnostics, those who don't believe that Jesus was real in flesh. To counter the Judaizers, who are trying to say you have to do more. Jesus plus something equals everything. And he's saying, no, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus anything is nothing. And then the syncretizers. So you hear lots of little phrases that Paul is using in this book to encourage them to know the truth well, to follow their bubbles, and to trust their instruments. Because God is God, and Christ is God, and the Spirit is God, and that's all you need. So he starts off with intro and thanksgiving and prayer, and it says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of, the, and of the love that you have for all the saints. The faith and the love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, 
the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. He's building them up. And now he's going to use some words that trigger some things. I'm not going to be all that specific on them, but trigger both the Judaizers, the syncretizers, and the Gnostics. Or at least the people that are reading it are going, hey, you've heard some of this stuff. Now let me correct or let me remind you. And it says this, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's the Gnostics. And we pray this in order that, now just so you know, anytime in the New Testament you hear Paul and specifically say, in order that, there are some beautiful, wonderful, probably long sentences, but some, some stuff that's worth chewing on coming. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, colon. And then he's going to explain what he means by that. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For, or for he has re rescued for you from all dominion of dark, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now there's so much going on right there. But he's talking to them about what real wisdom is, not Gnostic wisdom, not secret wisdom. He's talking to them about, about God is the one who qualifies you. God is the one who equips you. It's God that chose you. And that you don't, have to, you don't have to do all these other things in order to get God to love you. It's his wisdom. It's his dominion. It's, it's his strength. It's the truth that you know. So remember what the truth is so that you don't get caught up in all the other stuff. Our culture, we do this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it's a way that leads to death. We have, we, who has not heard that people say, oh, yeah, I believe, in, I believe Jesus, yeah. He was a really good man, very wise teacher. He came to show us what it's like to be, how we should be loving and inclusive and care about our fellow man. He was a rabbi and people followed him, but he set a good moral example. He is all of those things and all those things are true, but he claimed to be God. He claimed that he could beat death and he did it. It seems right that Jesus is all about acceptance and love and peace and harmony. And we love to love. But Jesus was also just and strong and spoke the very words of God. Jesus is the one that says no one comes to the Father except through me. We hear lots of people tell us that there are all kinds of beliefs, and who are we to say that, some, you know, that, that our way is right and someone else's is wrong? They had the same thing going on in there. We have people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person, and I, you know, I take the best from this, and I take the best from that, and I put them all together, and so it's really a religion of me. No one would say that, but that's what it is. It's self-worship. It's I get to do what I feel is good, and you can't tell me that it's any different. And Paul is saying to them, don't buy it, because there is only one name, 
by which you may be saved. There is only one name that is the highest name that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. There's only one. If I want to go to Texas and I go to Grand Rapids Airport, uh, Gerald R. Ford International Airport, and I get on any plane, I'm not going to go to Texas. i got to get on the one that's going to Texas. Paul is reminding them, hey, folks, know the truth. Study the truth. Be sure of the truth. And God will give you wisdom. He will give you discernment. He will make it so that you can see the counterfeit. And Paul is saying to us, folks, there are ways that seem right to a man but they are the ways that lead to death. But Jesus always also says, there is a way. And I'm not pointing at me, I'm acting as if I'm him. And I am the way. There is a truth, and I am the truth. There is a resurrection. There is eternal life, and I am the resurrection. You get caught up in this? Sometimes we think the most important thing is ritual or rite, R-I-T-E. Sometimes we think the most important thing is being a good person or being spiritual. Sometimes we think the most important thing is what political party we're a part of or what our candidate said and whether he or she keeps their promises. Some of us think that, that some of us, this is dangerous territory here, some of us worship our children And Jesus said, don't keep them from coming to me. Sometimes when we give them such responsibility that they have to love us so much that we keep them from coming to Jesus because we make them think that they have to come to Jesus through us. Paul goes on. This is when he, he's clearing up the idea that Jesus is kind of a phantom. He says, he, Jesus, is the... Is, turn the page too quick. But he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, or the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to, in, to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If Jesus was a good man, if Jesus was a good teacher, if he only came to teach us love and acceptance and tolerance, then he is not supreme. He is not above all things. He's not the creator of all things. All things aren't sustained by him, and all things aren't for him. 
Are we supposed to love our enemy? Absolutely. Are we supposed to, to show mercy and grace to people? Absolutely. But it's so much more than just what we decide is our moral code. There is no thought process, no worldview, no, no, no tweak on the gospel that he is not ultimately responsible for and that he does not want to speak to. It is him and him alone that gives hope and where salvation is found. There is no other way. He is the way. And I know how arrogant that sounds. But if he is the creator, doesn't the creator know better how things should work for the creature than the creature? I cannot tell God I know better than you do because I don't, even if I want it to be true. But every time we take things or every time we try to put new requirements on what it means to be Christian or what, what you know, traditionally it used to say this, but now we know it doesn't say that anymore. It doesn't really mean it. God, God needs to catch up with the times. No. Paul is so concerned that the Colossians are going to get pulled aside, going to get pulled down a road, are going to get pulled astray. Is there salvation in jeopardy? Probably not, because Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But is the joy and the peace and the ability to be, rejoice even when things are difficult, is, is, is the hope that they can live in now going to be stolen from them if they bend their knee to every little whim that comes along? Yeah. So the Colossian church is different than all the other churches because they're struggling with lots of little things trying to come in and contaminate or pervert the gospel. And so I think that the Colossian church looks most like the church in the West today. There are innumerable philosophies. There are countless counters to the truth of Scripture. There are things that people just don't want to be true anymore. And so Paul says to you, and he says to me, stand firm. Not stand firm like, I'm going to... Not kicking death's feet away and not being mean, not being harsh. But know the truth. If you know the truth, you'll be able to spot the counterfeit. Follow the bubbles, because they're always right. Trust your instruments. He's been so gracious to give you a love letter and to give you tools to understand it. Put it to a different way. Almost done, but... If I were to stand up here today, because I want you to know what this is not about. This is not about what are you doing and how many things or how are you striving to show Jesus how, how devoted you are. That's not what, but if I stood up and I said, how much time did you spend in your scriptures this week? What's the first thing that happens inside of you? Guilt? How long this week did you pray for the persecuted saints around the world, those that are being martyred for their faith? We talked about hurricanes up here, but we didn't mention the earthquake in, in Mexico City. Why aren't we praying for the Mexicans? I mean, we could go guilt, right? We could go with all that, with all that, oh, yeah, I'm not doing a very good job at that. 
It's not what he's saying. Paul is telling us, walk the way, and the way is Jesus. Talk the truth, because the truth is Jesus. Live in the hope of the resurrection because the resurrection is Jesus. Don't get contaminated. Don't get distracted. Don't get, don't get, don't get caught up in what Luke calls the worries of the world. There's so much here. And I, I, I encourage you to read the book of Colossians carefully. In Colossians 3, he tells them that they are who the Jews always saw themselves to be. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And folks, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Not W-H-O-L-L-Y, like completely loved, you are, but you're, you're set aside to be holy, to, to represent Christ everywhere because he wants the world to know that he's the way, that he's created a way that people might be found. He's created a way that people might be saved. He's created a way that actually works better than all the other philosophies out there. And he is that way. He is that truth. He is that resurrection. And there is forgiveness for sins. There is redemption to be bought back so that we're, we're, we're made right again. The gospel is the only hope for humanity. And folks, we, out of gratitude in our hearts to God, should know that gospel. And should be uncompromising in that gospel, not because we want to shame people, but because we don't want to be led astray and distracted from the very thing that God created us to be and to do. So stand firm. Follow the bubbles. Trust your instruments. And talk to God. If you read his love letter and you go, man, Paul, that was a long sentence. Go for a walk and ask God, God, in your love letter to me, I didn't really get it. What do you want me to know? Who do you want me to be? And the beauty of that is if you spend time in relationship with God, not in the religion, but in relationship with God, and you say, I want to know what you want me to know. I don't want you to come along and be a part of my will. I want to be a part of yours. You will learn to be able to spot the counterfeit in your own life. There's a way that seems right to a man, but it's a way that leads to death your own, how you talk yourself into different things. You'll be able to discern the very voice of God. And he will say to you, this is what you want, but this is what's better. Choose. And if you choose the more glorious way, your life will be better and those around you will be blessed. But if you choose what you want over what he wants, then you're choosing what's less instead of what's more. You're choosing the counterfeit over the pure currency that is Christ Jesus. He spent himself for you, and he asks you to simply be grateful. Let's pray to God. One more song. Last little thing at the end. Not a second sermon, just about a minute. Let's pray. Lord, bless you. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And Lord, remind us to consider you who endured such hardship from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. 
We know that the scripture says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Lord, remind us that we are the joy, that for the joy set before him, he did these things. Lord, we are his joy. And help us live in that joy, share that joy with others, and know the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Like, you might not know this, but when a preacher's up front, they can kind of read the room. And there's a couple of things going on out there that some of you are feeling kind of, that is not the intent. But I want you to know, if you're feeling a little, talk to Jesus about it. Your slate will be clean. You get to start all over again. Because he loves you. Let me give you an example. It's that one little thing I said a minute ago. When my kids were young, very young, um, both for my daughter and my son, but daddy used to have these little things that he did. And I would say to Elise, or I would say to Cam, if your daddy could choose any little girl in the whole wide world to be his daughter, who would he pick? Me. Now, I didn't have any say in which child I had, right? That was, that was God's ordinance that made these two children come into our family. But God can choose anyone to be his child. For eternity past, all people, all right now, and all the people that will ever come, he could pick any of them to be his child, and he picked you. And as a good father who doesn't want to see his kids go astray, who doesn't want to see his kids make wrong decisions, allow them to fail if need be, but he wants what's best for them. So does your heavenly father want what's best for you. So instead of resisting like a spoiled teenage brat, not saying teenagers are brats, I'm saying there are spoiled ones just like there are spoiled adults. But instead of behaving in a defiant way toward God, ask God what he thinks is best, what is true, what is good, right, noble, and excellent, and praiseworthy. And then go that way because he is the way. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. So look on God's face. God smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.